Cooking with Chopsticks. The truth about dictatorships. A podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chan. Hey Li Wen, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, we're good. Thank you very much. Um, a lot of things happened again. We just... Uh, broadcast last time was like three and a half four weeks ago because we both are pretty much uh, tangled up right now in things we're doing and uh, so many things happened within the last four weeks and uh, one interesting thing uh, worth talking about was that uh, Angela Merkel the Chancellor of Germany actually uh, she said in a uh, it was a video conference with 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 the political group leaders from the European Parliament and uh, she said well this is how people interpreted it, that uh, China is the, the top foreign policy uh, priority in her policy when she will become, uh, or when Germany becomes the leadership for the EU for six months. Yeah, interesting to see because people think, or some people regard that as kind of a concession saying China is the less troublesome partner to Europe or to Germany than the United States is right now. This is kind of worrisome or do we have to get used to that? I'm, I'm still not sure about what to think it. I don't know either because it's really funny that Merkel would say such a thing in such a time, like the biggest trouble in a hundred years, in a century's time that that has been brought to China and created such a disruption and disaster in the world. And she thinks that China is the less troublesome one. <laughs> I, it's, it, it sounds very strategic, right, to say so in, 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 such, a, in such times, after China got a lot of criticism. and I wonder, I wonder, I always wonder what motivates people to make a decision like that. Look, Merkel has been coming from Eastern Germany, she knows what an authoritarian system works. She knows things in, about Xinjiang and Hong Kong, right? And not only that, but also how Chinese government operate more aggressively now um, with the Belt and Road Initiative, trying to divide European Union as much as China can and influence the European Union's internal de decision uh, on many issues. And also, not to say in South China Sea and issues on Taiwan and etc. etc. All these kind of uh, aggression that China has shown in the past. What has made Merkel say such a thing is more interesting to me. I don't think that she thinks that China really is less troublesome. But he, she probably wanted to say, and also because her party probably made her to say that China is less troublesome in certain way to, to the EU or to Germany, at least. Well, first of all, I mean, Angela Merkel is a really smart person. I, I met her once or twice and had the opportunity to, to talk to her in a in a smaller circle so i realized she you know from beside or beyond the public figure she is she's really like a brilliant thinker and analyst she's very quick in her mind and so and her personality actually is uh, always kind of restrained she never she never pushes forward on certain issue as long as uh, the partners in the coalition or um, opposition parties in germany are still struggling to find a position on a certain subject she always is restrained and waits to give her final decision when she takes a decision like that or when she when she when she mentions things like that and uh, uh, that we interp interpret as uh, as putting china priority um, she she knows very well why she did it and it's indeed as you say it's interesting it would be very interesting to know what is her strategy behind it because as you say she comes from eastern germany and my perception of her political agenda within the last uh, 15 years she's been a chancellor now in Germany um, she was really opposing dictatorships I mean she, for me she was out of the question someone collaborating with, uh, 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 with with dictatorships I always felt like her her deep conviction was always 
like con dictatorships are no good. And in what was her range to, to act towards China, I thought she always actually made clear her point, but she always demanding or reminding China on, uh, on all the violations of, of human rights on a much more intensive and sustainable manner than other European leaders did that within the past. So when she said so, that China now is first priority, indeed, she has, she will have a strategy. Uh, well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, of course, well, business-wise, economy-wise, what else could it be? I don't know. Yeah, then, and that is interesting. And that is actually something I would like us to talk about today. You see a lot of uh, media narratives that how dependent Germany is to China. And many media even describe the uh, situation as Germany being more dependent on China than China is on Germany. Actually, the media got the narratives from the industries. Well, this is kind of dangerous a bit because I think we really, before we accept this kind of narrative, uh, China is a very, very strong player, no doubt about it. But when we already adapt the narrative to say that uh, we are... China is much less dependent on us than we are on them. We might be seduced to walk the talk and just, you know, behave like being the little brother of big Ch of big brother China. And this is and this is the wrong approach. Yeah, that's actually interesting because my friend Zhu Yi, she's an analyst, political analyst as well, and she wrote an article on a website that that she and her colleague has founded called Echo War. Echo War is about EU issues relating to China. And on this article, which is called How Dependent is Germany on China? It's a very yeah. long but very, very well-researched article. And her conclusion is that actually lots of these figures that the media have been referring to, for example, the trade volume with China, is now the highest for the first time since uh, 2016, overpassing the US, or that uh, Volkswagen is selling 6 million cars to China, and etc. All these figures are misleading. So I wouldn't use too many of the content of the article, but I would, ref I would definitely recommend our uh, audience to, look, to search for this article called How Dependent is China Germany on China by Zhu Yi. This is a mind-blowing piece because she has read all the original data of trade company annual reports and uh, analyzed all these uh, original data from the, from the government. Yes. And her questioning was very penetrating. For example, Actually, when it comes to real benefit, the EU countries are way more important than China and like really way more important to China. And the goods that are imported from China uh, to Germany are mostly cheap goods that you can easily replace with other countries, except, of course, now we face this like uh, medicine shortage in the corona time and some of the medical equipment. But even this, for example, for the mask, there's certain crucial uh, in components that need to be shipped from Germany to China before they could make it. So when you say, when you say misleading figures, um, the figures are basically right, but the story they tell might be a different one than we perceive. Yeah, they, they, it's a wrong interpretation of the figures. And also, there's another interesting figure that people never, never really question is that, okay, they say German car company made a lot of money in China, but actually most of the profit made in China have been reinvested in China. So they are not creating wealth and jobs back in Germany because Chinese government makes sure that every German company operating in China, the big ones, have to have state-owned enterprises uh, from China as the partner, and the partner have to have a majority share. So that means the Chinese partner have a say on how to spend the profit that 
that created in China. They changed this law basically, right? Now it's it's, it's possible for German car makers to have a, to have a majority uh, in, in in states, but uh, uh, yeah, but then there is another law that uh, is not law. There's another practice of the Chinese government which just make it extremely difficult for the companies to ship their profit out of China because the foreign reserve control. So you earn Chinese yuan in China, you want to change it to US dollar or euros, wire it back to Germany. It's such a big fuss already for more than a decade. This has been the case. And now it's nearly impossible because China is running out of the foreign reserve due to Xi Jinping's generous spending in the Belt and Road initiatives all over the world, Central Asia, Africa, Italy, wherever it is. So money cannot get out. And that's another thing. Mm. I mean, when we uh, have a look on our German car industry, it is, yes. I mean, they sold like 7 million cars last year. What, how, how much was it? Like 7 million? Like 20, 25% of all cars in China sold were German cars. Yeah, but then that's... you have to see that most of these cars, like only 1 million was exported from Germany to China. Of course, of course. Most of them are produced most in China. Most of them are yeah. produced in China, manufactured, made, yeah. ma manufactured in China, benefiting China's labor market and everything. But... And also the profit remain mostly in China. I mean, this is openly acknowledged by German car company executives. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the question is, or it's difficult to define, I think, how dependent you really are when you so, sell so many cars in a, foreign, in, a, in a foreign market. What would that really mean? What would be the impact if there would be just half of the sales? And no, but, but I think, uh, no, this is actually, I think the data itself was wrong. I mean, Germany did not sell 7 million cars to China. It did not. It actually sold only like 1 million cars to China. The rest of the cars were not sold to China, but made in China. So that's, that's really a different concept. It's true, but you still the, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the German shareholders of, uh, of the company still benefit from it. You know, the company still have their reports. And, yeah, there we, come then, to, right. there we come to the point. So it's a global phenomenon right now we are really hitting the heart of the issue now. It's a global phenomenon now, both in the US and Europe, in all the Western countries, any country with a stock market. Governments are shifting their role. Initially, I mean, in, if, if you look back to the post-war time, like you, you look back even to before the post-war time, like Roosevelt, when, when Roosevelt had the New Deal, or post-war time when America revived its economy, it's about the jobs, about the you know, social, uh, social system, how it, how it guarantees that people get more uh, education and jobs. But now the government's foremost important job is to secure the stock market's performance. And this is, I mean, there is a podcast called Hidden Forces, and they repeatedly talk about this economists, Wall Street elites, uh, historians, and etc. They, they all got this impression. So it's a very interesting thing that how power has shifted, I mean, from the voters to the shareholders. So what would that mean, actually, when, when well when German companies start selling just half of their cars in, in, in China, producing just half of it, manufacturing just half of it. I think that the impact for the Chinese industry would be pretty much the same. I mean, it's not only the, the German companies suffering from that and, and thereby their stockholders, their stakeholders, but as well, the Chinese industry would be hurt by such moves because they lose jobs as well. They lose the, the, the counterparts of the German companies in the joint ventures. They will lose their shares. They are also listed companies and their shareholder will suffer from it as well. It is, right? It is, it is on both sides. Yeah, the impact is on both sides, that's for sure. Because Germany has been a very important exporter to China of capital and machines, heavy machines that China used to produce this, you know, better and better products, it all come from Germany. There are lots of things that China still cannot make in the high-end machinery. 
manufacturing or designing or developing. And Germany has exported a huge amount of capital in China. So China is highly dependent also on Germany. It is. It is. And we, and we don't, instead of using, utilizing our strength, and, and we don't need to threaten anyone. It's just, you know, because we're in a struggle of, of narratives in the world about ideologies and about narratives, and we just have so much power to stick to our narrative, to stick to our standards without, without provoking someone or necessarily uh, confrontate someone, but just stay clearly to our standards, our values. Uh, and we, we had the, the economical power to do that because we are as a continent and especially also Germany and as a supplier of technology and, and creativity and ideas. We have a lot of things to give to, to China, and uh, I don't think that we really elaborate on that. We are, we are not utilizing that at all, because um, it seems like we are scattered by fear. You know, everybody is, is in his own corner, in his own little corner, biting his fingernails, and is scared of, of making a mistake. Hmm. I think what you are talking about is probably the, the German politicians who are now kind of, uh, as we say, their pants are burning from all sides. Well, industry as well, the industries as well, not only politicians, a lot of, a lot of leaders from the, from the industries are scared. And this is how they express the industry as well. But the industry has their own motivation very early on, even before the coronavirus. If we look back to how Volkswagen has been kneeling before Beijing, like really kneeling before Beijing. How long has that gone back to? Even 12 years ago, in year 2008, where Tibetans were burning themselves to death, one after another, hundreds of them died that way. And the Volkswagen has remained a sponsor of the Beijing Olympic Games without any criticism about China's Tibet policy. Yes. And yeah. in year 2012, they even make a political decision to build a plant in Xinjiang, uh, where you know already the the massacre, mm. the mutual massacre, the uh, extremists in Xinjiang as well as the police in Xinjiang had this war basically against each other. And uh, despite yeah. the fact that that I mean all all these concentration camp, <laughs> millions of Xinjiang is jailed, and yet Volkswagen just think that they need to do this it's it's a gesture it's it's a gesture that we knew before you this is way way before coronavirus they were rich you know Volkswagen was doing their great business but what drove them was not fear what drove them was greed it was this urge to compete in the world market with cheap labor, cheap and unprotected labor well certain protection now is established but relatively cheaper and less protected labor in China is still highly desirable. Do you think so? I mean, it's not... Do you think they were not urged to go to Xinjiang and, and set up a company? They were not the only ones. The BASF also uh, opened a company there, so I... Yeah, of course they were urged, of course. But that is not fear. I mean, if you talk about fear, that means you have no other choice. But Volkswagen and all these car companies in China they were edged towards that because they want something from China. And that is the cheaper, well-educated and less protected labor. Exactly. And, and if you don't get that, you are scared that you don't get it, right? I mean, so this is what I mean. It's... Yeah, well, well, how do you define scare? I mean, seriously, there are business. There, you, in Germany, you have good businessmen. You have good business operations ever since, I don't know, Lutheran. I mean, this is Lutheran spirit. There are always business companies, like really like family companies. They, they hold up to their values and they don't do things like everything sells, that kind of values. Mm -hmm. And we are really talking about whether business should have certain basic line of fundamental values. And we are talking about this very how to say, sensitive topic right now, especially because the, what we have seen is that multinational companies, international capitals have helped China, Chinese government, let's not say China, because this is different, helped the Communist Party to build up its, the most powerful authoritarian system in the world. Indeed, of course, yeah. 
monitoring equipment. Are they not responsible? What kind of fear? Like, how can you compare this fear of the people in China with the fear of losing profit? No, that's true. No, that's true. Uh, I wouldn't define that as fear in this case. This is greed indeed. Uh, still, if you have to build a company in Xinjiang, I think companies are, or if you are urged to do that in Xinjiang, companies, they are scared. They, are, they have the fear that, that if they don't comply, they will encounter consequences for their business. And, and so... Exactly. What kind of consequences? We can talk about that. How terrible is that? Well, they probably, well, they maybe put some... Put, yeah. put some... Would they kick, would they... Would they kick Volkswagen out of China? I don't no, think so. No, they don't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. This kind of manufactured so-called fear, but actually hidden in it is the greed. I want to expand more. I want to do more in China as much as I want as a good capitalist, industrialist. Uh, so let me just make a bit compromise. And then they would tell other people this is out of fear. I mean, this is, you would never know. But if if put you in such a decision, you can weigh all these decisions and see, like how much bargaining chip you have. You have a lot of bargaining chips, and yet you choose to kneel, and that is a different thing. I don't think it's fear. I think it's mostly greed. It's just the fear of losing a bit of your stock price, because for executives nowadays, particularly, they get their bonus, their income linked to the stock prices. You know, the, the, the fear is so big and, and, and then we bring it back to Europe, actually. The fear is so big uh, or the greed is so yeah. big, whatever you define it. Uh, we don't necessarily have to agree on, 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 the, on the pure definition of it to, to find out that anyway, we have the same situation when we regard 5G now, for example, Huawei. We are in the position, we're in the driver's seat to 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 pick between five suppliers of 5G worldwide and still Huawei or the Chinese government is threatening very clearly if we if you don't pick 5G or if you exclude us from your setup of the 5G in your country your industry will suffer from that for example there was the the I think it was the Chinese ambassador to Germany who said uh, well, please remember that Volkswagen sold uh, 7 million cars or German industry sold 7 million cars to China last year just to make his point and, you know, to refer to China's power and his uh, purchase power for and his importance for German companies um, to remind everyone, look, if we are excluded from that game, you guys go into trouble. So although we are in the driving seat in this case, we were not operating in China with uh, 5G. But we we want equipment. Uh, we still uh, seem to be driven by fear uh, or by greed, um, because if we would comply to the Chinese demand, the Chinese government demand, uh, it it could be both fear and greed. At the end of the day, why I would say, okay, yes, let's uh, let's please comply to what they want us to do. What you have described as fear, I think, I guess you you, you translated from the German word Angst. Exactly. Angst is not only fear, it's a, it's kind of anxiety as well. Anxiety, yeah. Real fear means you are facing life-threatening situation. Right, yes, you, you, yes, yes, you're true, yeah. Angst is much lighter. It's about like my, my status in the society will, will be lowered or my livelihood will be reduced and my income will be reduced. That is angst. When it comes to Huawei issue, it's also interesting that Zhu Yi in her article also mentioned that people were all saying that Germany is dependent on Huawei. In a way, yes, but then don't, don't forget that uh, Huawei's biggest R&D center is in Germany. And Huawei is an international company that has invested mm. heavily in global R&D. And even the, the, the patent of 5G was purchased from a Turkish professor who has got the better way to develop 5G technology. So Germany played a very important role in Huawei's R&D. And Ren Zhenfei, the founder of Huawei, has explicitly said himself that Huawei cannot survive without international support. Mm -hmm.
international R&D. So it's the German anxiety is sort of self-fulfilling, self-strengthening anxiety. And I know that right now Germany doesn't have a 5G Uh, technology that is for to under its own name. We we even struggling with with 4G to be honest in some areas. Oh dear, okay, it's another topic. Yeah, yeah. But first of all, if you look at China, what does China use 5G for? How urgent is 5G to our economic development? Chinese government so far use it the best on surveillance technology. Of course, you can talk about uh, Internet of Things. Uh, Internet of Things can be applied in, for example, driverless cars. And I, I always ask myself, like, how important driverless cars are? Like, what does it mean? Like, why do we need driverless cars so urgently and depriving people of their jobs? Drivers, for example. Chinese government uses it so far the best in surveillance technology. And that is hardly anything Germany aspired to. Let's say technology is important. 5G might develop its own stunning, like unexpected effects in the world. But Germany has lagged behind because Germany's own fault. This is exactly what Zhu Yi and I have been discussing for many years. The neglect in local school education and the relocation of the ICT work to China. And then you feel anxious because you uh, somehow feel obliged to follow these consequences. It's not the case. You could change that. The problem is, you know, with, with, with the, dependency. The problem with that this de dependency is self-fulfilling angst, self-strengthening angst, because everybody wants to follow the easy path. Nobody wants to take the hard decision and nobody has a vision. To change that. The problem is that with this kind of dependency and this, uh, in the wake of it, the angst that's coming up, that this is something that blocks your intellectual capacity. Uh, I know from myself when I'm in the in a situation when I feel dependent on things, <laughs> I, I I'm not, or uh. I'm yeah, I, I know I cannot utilize my full brain power in certain situations because I'm. Uh, I'm blocked by the emotions and, and angst is a very, very strong emotion that can block your, your capacity of, of, of decision-taking, of analyzing and, and also of, of, of your own performance while talking or while yeah, demanding your position and your standards. So um, before we talk on, on, uh, keep on talking on Huawei, for the German listeners who are not, um, who are not too familiar with, with Chinese, we're talking about Huawei. Because this is the pinyin, how it is spelled, and in and, and, and German marketing it is called Huawei. Uh, in Chinese, though, you, you call it Huawei, and I think some people might not have realized yet that we're talking about this company. Uh, still, um, when we talk about the 5G, yeah, are we right or are we wrong when we consider Huawei as a threat to our security? What do you think? Mm, I want to comment on your own like sympathetic understanding of the decision-making in Germany. Because you are a very sympathetic and nice person. I know that. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. But you have to be careful to place your own feet into the shoes of the powerful and resourceful decision makers. I don't think they are quite the same when they make decisions. There are lots of personal interests there mm. that are much larger than a bit of threat here and there. So I think... We have to really re-examine the decision-making process of Germany about industry's influence. How do they lobby? And how can the opposing camps of the industries can carry forward their opinions to the decision-makers? This is, I think, a challenge to the democracy mm. here right now, very strongly, because industries have dominated every decision-making with China. We move to Huawei. Huawei itself is not a threat. Look, 5G is just a technology. But in whose hand is that? We are all very clear. What kind of government is that? Well, they claim, so they, are claim we... they are not, right? I mean, they claim they are not. Of course, they claim they are not. This is also part of the system. They have to claim they are not. But think about Zoom. Recently, there is a, there is a news by Zoom. You, you saw that. I, I, yeah, I read they deleted account of a US-based Chinese activist, right? And the reason was to comply with local law. Yeah, Tsum claimed that it is a, 
American company, even an American company based in America, is doing this. And just think about that in the future. For example, if Chinese state-owned enterprises extended their interest in Germany, which is already happening, lots of merge and acquisition, transferring Germany's top uh, technology from Germany to China, and Germany now can still block it with the EU law and say, okay, we stop the M&A of state-owned enterprises from China to purchase. Like to buy away all our top technologies because they are simply too powerful and too big, they have too much money, so we can still block that now. But what if one day, Chinese government is so powerful, you are so dependent on the five G on whatever technology that Chinese government is using, it can simply threaten you with it and say you cannot block us. And what would you do then? So. What is the threat? We have to see it. Really, we really have to zoom out now from all these technical detail, like menial, small sort of inspection into certain technical details, but rather to draw out to see who is using this, who is using this for what purpose, and what kind of behavior pattern and what kind of interest. Predictable in the future. I'm still wondering why why we are not able to find a common position on that. Why we still have a lot of supporters that would argue that we need to treat Huawei fairly. Uh, I mean, being fair to someone, basically to any actor, I think is 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 a good approach. But we also shouldn't be too naive. If you talk about equal treatment. German company definitely do not get the equal treatment in China as Chinese company here. That's one hundred percent sure. But that would be a tit for tat. I,、yeah. I see the point. But that would be a tit for tat.、This、It is, has if, to if be tit for tat. Demand our our standard. But I think if we if we want to demand our standards or we want to sustain them towards a, a powerful country that that does not actually represent the same standards or values. I think、um, we cannot play that tit for tat game. Basically, oh, you can to, now. We, I mean, I you are, you are playing. Still, I think they should still treat Huawei really fair. But then we also need to be very clear that we that we don't treat it naively. I think we can still be very, 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 very、uh, strict with with Huawei and very, very consequent and and take the right decisions without being unfair. You have to know what is fair. First of all, you need to have intelligence in China. To substantiate, especially the media, have nothing to substantiate their claims that they are treating Huawei, Germany is treating Huawei unfairly. Go to China to do some in-depth research into how China treats Nokia and Ericsson. China was in the beginning introducing Ericsson and Nokia because China at that time had no telecommunication technology to worth mentioning of, and so China introduced these companies. And force them to transfer the technology to Chinese companies.、Yeah. Okay. Anyway, they earn some money there, and then there is a competition between the two models: the model of China, the model of the capitalism, uh, uh, the model in, in the Western capitalism, not the state capitalism of China. So, state capitalism use all these taxpayers' money to put into the state-owned enterprises or a pseudo. Independent company like Huawei, and make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. What has Nokia done?、Uh, I can speak this because I was a consultant for Nokia, so I know all the technical details. I see how Nokia, in the beginning, they had the best mobile phone in China. Everybody love it. They even hold to it even after they don't use it anymore. They love the phone. It's solid. It's very well designed, and etc. Unbelievable from a point from today's point of view. <laughs> Yeah, and then what did Nokia do? They cut off the mobile branch because it is not as profitable as the capitalists want, and so they lost this whole thing. Not because it's losing money, but because simply because it doesn't help the stock market to grow as much as they no, want. No, that's true. I mean, this is this is. And so you are competing in a stock market-driven, stock price-driven capitalism in the twenty-first century. And a state capitalism that is serving the power of a very ambitious government. How can you compete that? What is fairness in this? 
And mm. so Nokia, of course, gets more and more narrow in its own spectrum. Mm. And then it gets okay. less yeah. and less investment into R&D because it, you know, it simply reduces its own capacity. And that is how it kind of reduced itself to, uh, to, the, to now this year, Nokia got zero deal in the bidding for Chinese 5G network development. So you can't talk about fairness as just tit for tat. You really have to see it in such a kind of, it's a, it's a much bigger game than just specific policy. Yeah, I see your point. Okay, that means basically that uh, we still don't know about if Huawei is such an evil as, as, as some people might think it is. No, Huawei is not evil, but, but it's in the evil hand. In, in the evil hand. So is there any space for us to cooperate, to incorporate Huawei and its 5G into our future networks? Or are we actually in the position that we have to be strict if we want to abandon any kind of threat to our future security and safety? I mean, we just have to ask this question. Is the German government able to negotiate with Chinese government if one day they find out that they're, they're the backbone of the telecommunication facilities is taken over? by Huawei, would they ever be able in the future to protect Germany when Chinese government decided that Germany should sell everything to China, all the top-notch uh, technology? We are not yet at that stage. We are already talking about fear. What kind of fear would happen then? How would Germany protect its own interest then? This is my question. If people can find a solution to that, I'm more willing to listen. But I don't think anybody has. They just want to keep the status quo. They want to not offend anyone uh, and duck their head and do their little business. It's not going to happen because we are, we are facing a different opponent. But then it sounds like we're lost already. No, we're not lost. I mean, China is now very vulnerable. China needs Germany. But apparently, but apparently we don't really, well, utilize on that. We still like put ourselves in the in the lower position because the decision making process of germany about china issue is wrong it's threatened i mean our democracy is threatened because voices opposing to this were kind of overwhelmed or subdued by voices from the industry and the industry did not want to do that because it's costly and it's difficult and etc whatever it is i don't know stock prices But many, the industry is changing in other countries as well. You look at the US, you look at Japan, you look at Taiwan, even Vietnam. The US, Japan, and Taiwan moving their operation out of China. They are moving their, their capacity even ever since the uh, US-China trade war. US and Japanese government are sponsoring that. They throw in money to sponsor that. And Vietnam is taking over right now. The US and Vietnam just signed a free trade deal. Yeah. Taiwan, of course, goes without saying. You have to see that this is a life and death stage. In our time, war is not in the form of nuclear weapon. The war is everywhere right now. It is, yeah. And Germany cannot afford to keep on siding unconditionally without thinking with a government that is so unpredictable and with so much ambition to control. You know what is a problem in Germany for the perception of, of the threat we are facing is that a lot of people are not aware of uh, that our democracy is actually at stake. Um, maybe not tomorrow and ma maybe not the day after tomorrow, but uh, in a middle to long term, um, yes, our democracy is definitely challenged very, very much. It is right now very challenged already and, and um, still um, I think that there is a lack of awareness of that threat <clears throat> and not only with people who don't care about politics, um, people who uh, do nothing else but actually put themselves into position to, to take part in the games of politics. For example, there was, <clears throat> do you remember we were talking about Hungary mm. and, yeah. uh, and the president's uh, Orban's decision to, to, to grant himself more powers during the, the corona uh, crisis? And, and I remember some of my Facebook's, uh, Facebook contacts, he posted a thing and saying like, oh, does anyone remember here how the media were, uh, he, he's by, from the media by himself, and he said uh, how the media were hysteric about Hungary turning to become a dictatorship, and now look what happened, nothing, all good in Hungary. 
<laughs> that was basically the bottom line of what he said. And I was shocked by, by that kind of, well, naivety. I don't know. I mean, of course, it's not possible to just turn the Hungary from one day to another from a democracy or a, an election-driven parliamentary uh, democracy to a, to a dictatorship. Of course not. But it is little steps. And, you know, to claim that everybody was wrong by saying that he wants to turn the democracy into an authoritarian system just by saying it didn't happen, it didn't, it, it didn't end up this bad as everybody predicted or some media predicted, is really, for me, uh, a hint of the lack of awareness that our democracy is at stake. And in this in this kind of area we are right now we are moving, and that of course makes it easier for a country that has a certain strategy and that wants to undermine our democracy if we don't realize that. Which which is actually also the, the reason why we're doing this podcast to 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 raise some awareness for the threat of our democracy. Exactly, and I think that is why there is this English phrase called "inconvenient truth." Right, yeah. the truth is inconvenient because it really makes people uneasy, makes them uncomfortable. Because when the truth comes out, you have to make a change. You have to face evil, uncomfortable facts. There's one thing I I, I, I rarely talk about, but then I, I now becoming more and more uh, outspoken about it, is the experience of my father in the Cultural Revolution. So people did not know, many people did not know that during the Cultural Revolution in Guangxi province, there was a cannibalism during the Cultural Revolution, meaning the instigated so-called revolutionary people kill the anti-revolutionary first and eat their inner organs collectively. That is in Wuxian County, we're not talking about the Great Famine. We're talking about the Cultural Revolution. It was not like a necessary... No, okay. it was not famine. It was not famine. It was... Cannibalism has a tradition in human society. From time to time, it erupted. And in Guangxi, Guangxi has been a... <laughs> how do you say that? Less, uh, less developed province in China. And I'm talking about really just people in a county. Yeah. At that time, they revived a cannibalism tradition and, and they ate the inner organs of the anti-revolutionaries. My father was almost eaten because he was, he, he was beaten as a one faction of the Red Guards. And he was a little small boss leader there. And he was arrested by the other, the other faction and yes. jailed with another teacher. And according to him, he was not eaten because he was too skinny. And his jailmate oh. was fatter. <laughs> and he was taken out that day and they paraded. The procedure was that you paraded the, in, in the public and then people would start to attack you with sticks and stones. And if you fall down, I mean, even before you are fully dead, they start cutting you up. Oh. And this is what I called inconvenient truths. Because people don't want to listen to this. You tell this to people, people think you are offending them. The first reaction is, don't tell me this. This is repulsive, disgusting, it's the past, don't tell me. This is human reaction, I get it now. In, in, in China, Everywhere. the reaction, I think. Especially I think. in the West, okay. in China also. And, but in the West, you have lived in a peaceful situation for much longer than we do. And mm. you, you don't want to listen to this sort of disgusting, horrible thing. And you refuse to, uh, to, to, to accept it because it's sort of, um, how to say, it sort of offends your sense, your idea about the world, about human beings. It does on everyone. Right, it's 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 kind of it's kind of devastating, and so many of those uh, Chinese people who escaped China, mainland China during the Cultural Revolution, quite some of them sp spoke out about this, but they were dismissed by Western scholars, medias as just being exaggerating because people do not want to believe in it. So you can read all about this. 
in one of the chapters of a book by a British, I think, Guardian journalist called John Gittings.、Mm-hmm. The book is called "The Real China," and in one of these chapters, he visited Wuxian, and and that was 1990s. People did not know much about the outside world, and when Gittings was there and asked people about this history, local people proudly presented him. Here, this is where we, you know, killed him, and that is where he's cut open. And this was incredible for him, like shocking. And he then referred back to how this this kind of statement from the witnesses were dismissed in the West, and and wrote it all in his book. And nowadays, of course, it's not possible. So. Inconvenient truth is that right now we have to see that Chinese government was has instigated crimes like this. Chinese government has done this and that, and it has never repent or apologize officially deeply、um, for these deeds.、Mm-hmm. Not only that, I mean many of these people, some of them were punished.、Uh, some of the local、uh, officials were punished. Lightly, like a slap on the wrist, kind of punished, but then after that, they kept on rising in their rank. Lots of people nowadays in power were still the violent ones in the past, in the Cultural Revolution. You know that so, that reminds me of uh, uh, well, of, of、uh, just I heard a statistic recently from a from a、uh, with childcare federation. They say the comparison is a bit is a bit far fetched, but still.、Uh, It's the same sense. It says like、uh, children who have been abused or experienced any kinds of abusement,、um, they need to talk to seven adults before they get hurt. Oh yeah, if they are lucky. <laughs> if they are lucky, yeah. Or yeah, before yeah, they yeah. got believed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On average, they said.、Yeah. On average, they said seven adults before they got believed, and someone says, "Okay, I'm listening to you." And that actually is the 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 the, the common bottom line of it. Listen to to the stories you hear.、Um, yeah. Okay. Then we come to the point where you have to ask yourself what what to believe and what not to believe. But at least you need to listen to the stories, even if you don't like to listen to them,、uh, to 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 give you a broader base for for judgment. Yeah, at least keep a question mark instead of dismissing it as just one of these conspiracy or one of these exaggeration or one of these fabrication before you even know what is going on. And this kind of arrogance or conceitedness or the satisfaction of a peaceful life is very much present in today's、uh, European people's kind of、uh, thinking pattern. So it's very hard, of course, to convey this harsh message across and tell them, "Look, your democracy is in danger, and you are facing a government that can do anything and sacrifice anyone and as many as possible if it wants to fulfill its ambition, to fulfill its own power greed." Well, having said so,、um, we should have a talk on the Cultural Revolution, on the experience from your family uh, soon. Uh, that's it's also very fascinating to listen to these kind of stories. Well, anyway, for now, I think、uh, we're good. We're pretty much、uh, over the time, I think, already.、Uh, but still, it was it was、uh, fascinating and interesting to talk to you about it. More also, it's challenging, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we just grow with、uh, with the challenge we're facing. It's it's really good. It's really good.、Okay. Very much so, and、okay. and I think、uh, right now for this episode, I think it's really a serious matter. I think what we are facing about the this statement that Germany is dependent on China is not really carefully examined, which really reduces the dependency on China. Because of one, two, three, four that we have stated before, I hope that I hope the message can come across at least to some. Thank you very much for your time, Liwen. I think we listen to to each other、uh, within a few weeks. I think. Thank you. Okay. okay let's hope so, for that. Okay. Bye. Bye.
cooking with chopsticks. The truth about dictatorships. A podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chanan. <laughs> 